Well, hello, Cove Church. I am so glad you're with us uh, here online. And I've been thinking about that actually lately. I know that uh, some folks have have started coming back to in-person services. Many of you are still online. And I just want to say thank you for that and and just uh, let you know we're mindful of you. Uh, Many of you have come up to me and say, hey, we're we're still out here. (laughs) And and I get that and I understand it. And I just want you to know that whether you're in-person or online, you're still in every way a part of this family a part of this community, and we are so glad to be on this journey with you. So just thanks for being a part of Cove Church. We are in for amazing things ahead as we walk together. With that, I will start uh, with a story. When we lived in Redmond, uh, there this most recent time when we planted a church there, uh, in that season, the Catholic Church of our community built a new building. And to me, as I watched this building get built, it was the most beautiful building in our town. That's what I would say. That's what I really thought. I I was used to churches that met in warehouses, you know, and just not very pretty structures. But this this building was just absolutely beautiful. It had some sort of ancient ideas of of, um, architecture, but it was also very modern, very well made. And I just thought it was so incredible. And I remember this one day, I wanted to go into that. That building. I wanted to see the inside. I could only see the outside. If it was that amazing, I wondered what the inside would look like. So I pulled up into the parking lot, and there was lots of cars. It was during a weekday, and lots of cars there, and I see people getting out of their cars and going into the building, disappearing. And I'm like, oh, that's great. The building's open. This will be cool. I can finally see the inside. And so I go. I, I, I get out after I'd seen some folks go, and I, and I go to the doors, and, and they're locked. And I'm like, oh, they must use uh, another door. And so I, I go this way around the building looking for another set of doors, and I found a set of doors. And those doors, too, were locked. And, I, and I'm looking around. I'm like, I don't get it. I, I walk out towards my car. I see another couple get out of their car, go towards the building, and, and go around a corner and, and disappear. And so I'm like, oh, they must have opened the door. And so I go back to the first door. Oh, those, those are locked. Maybe there's a door over there that I missed. I walked farther around the building looking for doors and, and it was locked. And I started to think, is somebody like punking me right now? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Everybody gets into this place, but me, I don't understand. I don't get it. I so wanted to be in there, but I couldn't find a way to get inside. It was a frustrating feeling. And I found myself asking the question, How do I get there from here? As I bring this final message in our series that we're calling Balance, where we're addressing issues of money and stewardship and finances and what God's best looks like in all those things, I think the natural question we may find ourselves asking is this, how do I get there from here? How do I get there from where I am today? I I hear what you're saying, pastors. I I see what what you're talking about. I agree with what you're saying. I want to go there, but how do I do it? And so today, regarding God's best in finances, I hope to address that, at least in some ways. Getting from here to there. So we're going to be looking at a passage from 1 Timothy where we see some incredible wisdom regarding God's best in finances. And we're going to begin with this encouragement from that passage. It's this idea. The first thing is, desire the fruit of contentment. That's the encouragement we get here, is to desire the fruit of contentment. Let's pick up the passage, 1 Timothy 6, starting verse 6. Let's read it together. Big voices go, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. It says godliness with contentment is great gain. Translation, godliness plus contentment equals great wealth. But for us, we end up getting distracted by the wrong goal. No, no, great wealth, it means more stuff. It means more cash. That's the real goal. Yet as we see here, that's not what leads to great wealth, to great gain. Yet still, we find ourselves at times pursuing that as our target. I remember years ago, I was uh, learning how to shoot a bow for archery. I had a friend that was a, a bow hunter, and we went, uh, did a couple of seasons elk hunting with bows. And so I was just a beginner, and, uh, and we would go out to this range, this archery range, with lots of different archery folks there, and we would practice, like at lunchtime. And we're out at this range, and there's all these really legit bow people out there. They have bows with these giant counterbalances on the end. They're like Olympic athletes, and they're shooting arrows at all these targets. And the targets are lined up, so there's some closer and some farther away, but kind of in the same lanes. And so they look at me as I walk up there with my, my used bow that someone had given to me, just a starter. My, my arrows like had feathers falling off of them. I, it was, I, I obviously did not look like I knew what I was doing. And I step up to the line. It's kind of like bowling. One guy goes and you kind of wait for them to go and then you go. So a guy shoots and I wait for him. And I get up and I take my bow and, and I shoot. And, and I watch as that arrow goes about 50 yards and it hits the 50-yard the target and goes right into the bullseye, dead center bullseye. <laughs> and the guy down the line looks at me like, oh, look at that, we got, a, we got somebody legit here. And my friend who knew me, who I was with, who knew that I didn't know what I was doing, he walks up to me, whispers in my ear, he's like, how did you make that shot? And I whispered back to him, I wasn't aiming at that target. <laughs> See? <laughs> That's what happens to us. Often in life, when it comes to stuff, when it comes to cash, we're pursuing the wrong target. Often what we say is, I've got enough God, but I really want more stuff. Instead of saying, no, I've got enough stuff. I really want more of God. This is where God wants to change us. So he invites us to this spiritual cocktail of godliness and contentment. And the end result, he says, is true wealth. The key for us then is beginning to see what we already have. Do you realize that we live in the richest time in history, in the richest nation in history, even now, even after COVID? Let me prove it to you, okay? If you were able to read the scripture that we read just a few moments ago, by global standards, you are rich. One, because you have the ability to read, but also because you have the freedom and the time to learn how to read. So congratulations, if you could read that, you're rich. If you, uh, your normal work week is a five-day work week, that is unique for many people in the world. Many people in the world don't enjoy that. So again, congratulations. If you have a five-day work week, you're rich. Let's think about income. The median, median household income for Eugene, for our town, this is a family now, is 42,000 a year. Okay, that's the, the median income. 
If that's where you're at as a family, you are wealthier than 94% of the globe. You're in the A category when it comes to wealth. So congratulations, you're rich. If you have watered your yard, <laughs> many people around the world go to get water and they carry it in jars on their head. They carry it many miles from a watering source. And yet us, we have so much water that we can pour our water on the ground so that the ground is green instead of brown. So because of that, congratulations. If you've watered your yard, you're rich. Here's the problem. Even though in so many ways we are rich, we don't feel that way because rich is relative. This is the land of the first world problem. We are the first world and these are our problems. Starbucks got my order wrong. How dare they? I said soy milk. That's a first world problem. Delta Highway is backed up. How dare they slow me down by five minutes? That's a first world problem. You're on a plane and the internet is slow and we're frustrated. How dare it be slow? And we forget we're flying in a chair through the sky and we're using a computer that's going to space. But we're frustrated because it's slow. These are not the problems of most of the world. And the truth that this passage points out is that anything past food and clothing is gravy. And we're swimming in gravy. But we don't feel that way because there's always someone else who seems to be swimming in more gravy. Ben Franklin said this, content makes poor men rich, discontent makes rich men poor. And I'm afraid that we live in a culture of discontent. And this passage is reminding us that riches and value and true wealth, that it's found in godliness with contentment. And yet our culture tells us day in and day out that that can't possibly be enough. Think of TVs throughout the years. They started out these giant pieces of furniture and the TVs had tubes in them, right? But then we got better. We got cubes instead of tubes. Okay, that's better. And then we went with projector screen TVs and then we went with flat screen TVs and then we went from 3K to 4K to LED and high definition. And so what do we do? We dump the cube even though it works so good and we get the flat screen. Because for us, the next thing, the new thing, is always the better thing, even if the old one still works. Think about phones. Remember when cell phones, they started out, they were huge, and then they got smaller, and then they got to flip phones, and then they got smartphones, and then they got huge again. And so we moved from iPhone 1 now to iPhone 12. And we forget that a lot of those numbers in between still work, <laughs> you know? I can go back, I can you know, get the iPhone, I'm working an iPhone 8, you can go back, it still works, and people will talk on their old number phone and be in line and it's working great, but they'll be in line to get the new phone, I gotta get the 12. Now no shade if you have the 12, okay? No shade at all, I get it, they have better cameras, better screens, some of you are photographers, totally fine, I'm not shading any of that. But it's another example of our culture of more, it's not that the old one doesn't work, it's that the new one must be better. Our culture is built on having the next thing even though the last thing still works. 
And what that does is it breeds in us this anti-contentedness. We live in a culture of discontent. And it's making the wealthiest nation on earth believe that it's poor. You know, Money Magazine, it asks its readers what it would take for them to actually believe that they were rich. And here's what they noticed. For every person, no matter what their situation was, they noticed that it always took twice what they had. So the person making 20000 a year said, well, it would take 40000 a year for me to actually feel rich. The person making 100000 a year said, well, 200000 a year would make me feel rich. The person making $5 million said, oh, $10 million a year, then I would actually feel rich. You see how that goes? Rich was always about just having twice what I have, more than what I have. It was never about having what I actually need. This is why God is calling us to produce the fruit of contentment, which means I don't just believe in contentment, I actually act on it. That our behavior changes because it reflects this new goal that that we would have health in, in these two areas. One, in godliness, meaning healthy relationship with God, and contentment meaning healthy relationship with stuff. And I think the simplest answer for many of us is to recognize that I need more of God and I need less stuff, not less of God and more stuff. That I learn to hold the stuff lightly and I hold to God tightly. So what needs to change for you to make that true? Because if we could get good at that, at holding to God tightly, holding to stuff lightly, if we could get good at that, we would actually experience true wealth, great gain. We would be truly rich. So desire, first, the fruit of contentment. Secondly, address the toxin of greed. Address the toxin of greed. Let's continue the passage. First Timothy 6, verse 9 Let's read it, big voices go. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Plutonium has been called the most toxic substance known to mankind. In fact, pieces of plutonium are so radioactive that they are actually warm to the touch. So to handle that material, they either use robotic arms and machinery, or they work with suits and barriers to keep from ingesting that poison, because they know it has an inherent danger. However, as we also know, plutonium can be extremely helpful. It can fuel a nuclear reactor, bringing energy to thousands of people. But we also know plutonium can be incredibly destructive. When fashioned into a nuclear bomb, it can end the lives of thousands in a millisecond. Because of those pitfalls, it must truly be handled with care. Understanding the pitfalls of that particular element becomes a vital part in learning to use it for good. And this passage is showing us that money and wealth, it's like plutonium. 
It has the ability to bring about wonderful change, impact so many lives for good, while at the same time, if it's handled improperly, it can easily destroy the life of the one attempting to wield it. We're told here that this drive to be rich, it's a, it's a temptation. It's a snare. It, it leads us, it can lead us to ruin. It can lead us to destruction. It leads us to all kinds of evils. It, and we end up with people here wandering from God. And our experience in life, that tells us it's true, right? So like plutonium, like plutonium, it would be really good to know what to watch out for. How to handle this isotope known as money. God in this passage gives us the answer to how to do that. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it mentions here two pitfalls of wealth. Here they are, arrogance and misplaced trust. Arrogance and misplaced trust. Arrogance, let's talk about that, is an inflated sense of self-worth. And we have to reject the pull of that from our culture. This is what our culture does. We must fight the urge to tie self-worth to net worth. That somehow people are better when they have more money or more stuff. That my value is found in what I have instead of in who I am. Because God doesn't think like that. This is why we have to fight it. Jesus said, when he was talking about John the Baptist, that he was the greatest born of women. <laughs> Yet he had nothing, right? He wore camel hair, and he ate bugs. He was on no one's list of rich and powerful. He was on their list of poor and crazy, but not rich and powerful. Yet Jesus calls John the Baptist great. His net worth had nothing to do with his actual worth, but that's not the world that we live in, is it? Think about high school. How important in high school was it to have the right brand not just the right clothes, but you got to have the right brand, right? You got to have the right label. I just looked up this week a popular brand that's out there. I looked up a backpack of a popular brand that's out there. I don't want to give the name away. It rhymes with Dupreme. Uh, and, and I looked up a backpack there. And the backpack, just this book bag, okay, it cost $200. <laughs> I was like, what? And I looked at the details. I'm like, there must be something special about this backpack. It must be used gold thread. Nope, no gold thread. Oh, maybe this backpack was blessed by the Pope. Is that what they did? Nope, no blessing by the Pope. Oh, does it come with its own Sherpa to carry your stuff? That would be fine if it did that. Nope, no Sherpa. It's just a backpack with a name. Yet somehow, when you're a teenager, that name really matters. It's as though your quality as a human being is linked directly to the label that you wear. And if we don't have the labels, then we're made to feel less. And if we do have the labels, we risk thinking that we are so much more. And arrogance is the result. And I wish I could say that all of that stops with our teens, but the truth is, the labels just change. Labels on cars and portfolios and stuff and things. 
And again, what we find ourselves being pulled to do is to tie self-worth to net worth, to tie some, someone's value to what they have. And God doesn't make that connection. In fact, God warns us that this toxin of arrogance is tied to it because we understand that pride ultimately precedes a fall. So one of the dangerous toxins to be watchful of regarding wealth is arrogance. This idea that because I have more, then I am more. Yet in God's value system, our worth does not come from any price that we are able to pay, but from the price that was paid for us. That is where we are all humbled, at the cross. So we must guard against this toxin of arrogance. Now another dangerous toxin this mentions is misplaced trust. Now we put our trust in the wrong thing. Think of some of the tragic images of history. Think of the stock market crash and, and, and the, the Great Depression. And we see in the midst of all of that struggle that people were actually jumping out of buildings in desperation, ending their lives, all because of a trust that was misplaced. Thinking that, that this money and this stuff will always be there and it will always satisfy me and it never does. Now it may distract us for a time, it may numb us for a time, but it doesn't heal us. And when it's gone, our lives feel empty and they feel meaningless because they were built on styrofoam. We must place our trust where it belongs on Christ and Christ alone. This is the radioactive side of wealth. These are some of the toxins of greed. It doesn't make money evil. It does, it does mean that we have to suit up so that we can handle it well. Now, how do we do that? Here's how, and it's the last thing. We get to apply the antidote of generosity. We get to apply the antidote of generosity. 1 Timothy 6, 18, let's read it. Big voices, go. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Two principles to live by here regarding the safe handling of this radioactive compound known as money. Here's the two principles, good works and good gifts. Good works and good gifts. Rich in good works and be rich in giving. To grow in both. And this is so important because often the reverse becomes true. Here's what I mean. In America, on average, the middle class gives 6% of their income to charity. Okay, I'm not just talking about churches, but just to charity, okay? Now, the upper class, you would think, that because the upper class has more money, they would be giving more to charity, right? That would make perfect sense, right? Actually, the giving goes down to 4% in the upper class. In fact, the higher you go on the income, the lower the percentage of giving goes. The lower the portion of giving goes. The gifts are bigger, but they represent less and less generosity the higher up the income goes. So once again, there is only one antidote for this radioactive isotope known as money. And you know what that antidote is? It's a generous life. 
Because the generous life, it protects us from these snares that are connected to money. And, And the key is this progression in our lives, this growth in our lives of more and more generosity. See, giving was never meant to be a static, rigid, religious event. Rather, it is to be a fluid, relationship-based response to Jesus. And this involves money, but it also involves time. It involves our talent. That we would be so caught up in just responding to Jesus that we find ourselves growing in all of that that we're rich in good works, that we're ready to share at all times. There's this generosity flowing out of our lives because we're constantly trusting Jesus for more and we're watching him meet us as we do that. And it's in that kind of giving that that we create space for that. Here's here's an illustration that I use. Let's say you just got paid $1,000. And so if you were to tithe on that, it would be $100. There's a $100 bill. It actually belongs to Adele. She's the only one of us that has a $100 bill. So this is hers. But I borrowed it for this illustration. So you have a, a decision to make. You just got paid $1,000. Now I could take that $100 and, and I could say, okay, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to use it to pay some stuff because I got some bills to pay and some things that that could go towards. So I'm going to use it for that. Now, when we make that choice, here's what we're saying to this $100 bill. We're saying to, who is that? Is that, uh, uh, is that Franklin? Yeah, it's Franklin. Oh, no, yeah, okay, that's good. We're saying to Ben Franklin here, you have to save me, okay? I'm trusting you to take care of it. I've got all these needs now, and I'm going to trust that you take care of those needs, okay? I'm trusting you to meet my needs now. That's what we're saying to this $100 bill. In fact, we could sing a little song about it, you know? Tis so sweet to trust in $100, just to take it at its word. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great is $100, how great is $100. So that's what we could do. We could put it in that place in our lives. You have to take care of me. And in fact, for all of us as Christ followers, what happens is we take all of this to the cross, right? We're always all going to the cross, but there's two ways we can approach the cross. We could put this $100 in this instance, on the cross, hang it where Jesus hung. And we could say to that $100 bill, I need you to save me. And that's where we place it. Or, as Christ followers, we approach the cross and we could lay this down at the foot of the cross. And in doing so, what I'm saying is I am trusting not this piece of paper to save me, but I am trusting the one through whom I have already been saved. That's what happens when I laid that down at the foot of the cross, when I give it in trust to Jesus. The question always comes back to, who do I want to trust my life to? Do I want to trust my life to a piece of paper? Do I want to trust my life to the living God? And I trust God when I apply this antidote of generosity in my life. Now, as this passage concludes, it gives us the end result of taking these steps as Christ followers. It says, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Living this way, is what allows each of us to walk on solid ground. This is how we get from here to there. 
It's through this generosity that our treasure is converted from that which pretends to be life and it becomes that which is truly life. This is part of God's love for us to teach us how to handle this dynamic, this powerful and yet oh so dangerous element known as money. But if we would trust him, we can watch God use that amazing gift to great and eternal good, both in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Let's watch him do that. Let's pray.